You can be dismissed. Those are part of the kids' worship classes during the service. I invite the rest of you to turn to John 11 for our scripture reading this morning. Our scripture this morning comes from John 11, beginning in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, Everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Let us pray. (coughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word and we ask that you open its truth to us today. Lord, throughout your scriptures, you have spoken through those who either did not understand or did not honor you. Even here, you spoke through Caiaphas and he did not understand what it was that he was prophesying about. But today, Lord, we are presented with a man of God that has studied your word and is seeking to show himself approved. Lord, bless the reading and the studying of the word that he has done this week. I pray that you would speak through him. I pray that you would use Paul as your instrument today to open up and to reveal your truth to us. I pray that you would open our eyes and remove the scales so that we may see the truth. Unplug our ears that we may hear that truth. Ultimately, Lord, I pray that it would pierce our hearts and convict us and not just make us feel a certain way, but to change us, to change the way that we speak, to change the way that we treat others. Lord, use your word in this way. Ultimately, Lord, not for just us, but that you may be glorified 
We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin this morning by looking back at a key point in John's gospel and how it is rising to the surface of what we are seeing at this point in Jesus' earthly ministry. It's a very good reminder of something that we often say here at Providence that is very important whenever we hear Jesus speak, whenever we come to hear his truth, and that is that revelation demands response. And so I want us to start there this morning to remember that revelation demands response. As the readers of John's gospel, we have been on a journey of beholding Jesus as the word who became flesh, eternal God who became a man, and who did so to bring redeeming grace to people who otherwise are perishing in their sins. Jesus, the true light, entered into our darkness. He came into this world that is estranged from its maker, and he did so to give light and life to all who believe on his name. Jesus came to those who rejected him in order that he might open our eyes to his glory and redeem us from our bondage to unbelief. He came to give us an imaginable blessing of becoming the children of God. One of our favorite books here at Providence is the Jesus Storybook Bible, am I right? And so Sally Lloyd-Jones writes in that wonderful little book, for anyone who says yes to Jesus, for anyone who believes what Jesus said, for anyone who will just reach out to take it, then God will give, give them this wonderful gift to be born into a whole new life, to be who they really are, who God always made them to be, their own true selves, God's dear child. That's beautiful, not just for little children, but for all of us today who call ourselves children of God. That the coming of the light into the world was indeed a glorious act of grace and love. But the coming of the light also necessitated a choice to be made by those in the world who have seen it. Would they say yes to Jesus, or would they reject the light, hating him for exposing their darkness? Revelation does demand a response. When Jesus came to earth, his light shined clearly for all to see. He did many signs and wonders to show that he was indeed the promised Messiah that had been pictured and proclaimed throughout the Old Testament scriptures. He was the light that had dawned on those living in the shadow of death. And so through his words and through his works, the glory of the Lord shone brightly in Jesus' ministry. We've seen it all through John's recounting of Jesus' time on earth. 
But when Jesus acted in the seventh and final sign recorded by John here in John 11, and he, by his omnipotent voice, called four days dead Lazarus from the tomb. And when Lazarus obeyed, and as John put it, the man who died came out, such a revelation of the life-giving glory of Jesus left no room for indifference. Light defeated darkness, and Jesus made no bones about it. He is the true light. He is life. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus said to Mary. I am the Messiah. I am the one promised by God who brings everlasting deliverance to his people. Whoever believes in me, Jesus promised, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And so Jesus is saying to all those who hear this word this morning, the same thing that he said to Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe this? You see, friends, that is what Jesus desires in revealing his glory in such a powerful way. He does so that we might see him full of grace and truth, and that we might believe that he is the Messiah sent from God to give life to dead souls. This is what Jesus prayed to the Father before he called Lazarus from the tomb. Do you remember that from last week? He prayed to the Father right before he calls Lazarus to come out that on account of this miracle, people would believe that Jesus was sent from God to defeat our greatest enemies and thus to turn him in faith to receive the light of life. That's why Jesus did this miracle. That is what he prays to the Father. For those who heard about this miracle when it was done, those who saw it done, and those who hear about it still today. And so it's no surprise that what follows this miracle is an escalating conflict between light and darkness. John gives us this picture in verses 45 and 46 with a pattern that we have often seen him use to show us that there are only two types of responses to Jesus those who believe on him and those who stand opposed to him. Some people may feel better to say that they don't have any hard feelings toward Jesus. They just don't see him as the only way to the Father. They don't love him, but neither do they hate him. They're just indifferent. But that is not the truth that John continues to show us. When we are confronted with the grace and truth of Jesus, we cannot remain neutral. We either believe or we remain opposed. 
Now, I say that we remain opposed because apart from Jesus intervening in our hearts and lives, we are all enemies of God. We see him as a threat to our pride and our safety rather than our greatest hope as the giver of life. We see him as an imposter on our own glory, and thus we are cold and callous to his glory that is full of grace and truth. That seems to be what is going on here in our text this morning. Because on one hand, in verse 45, John tells us that based on the events that they had just witnessed, many of the Jews believed in Jesus. Now, the caliber of their faith is not told us, but maybe some believed, as Martha had stated in verse 27, that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. It seems as though their eyes were being opened in preparation for the impending death and resurrection of Jesus. But then there is the side of unbelief and opposition in verse 46. Not all the Jews who had witnessed Jesus' resurrection miracle responded in faith. Some went directly to Jesus' known enemies, the Pharisees. It was no secret that they were trying to get anything on Jesus that they could in order that they might arrest him and have him killed. We've seen that clear back since chapter 3. They would certainly have wanted to know that Jesus had just greatly raised the bar through this latest miraculous act of resurrecting the dead. So once the Pharisees knew what Jesus had done, they wasted no time. Since they by themselves could not take decisive judicial action, they gathered what was called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the name for the Jewish executive council that managed the, the nation's internal affairs. They were the supreme court of the Jewish nation mostly comprised of these chief priests. So this is a high-level federal consultation that is taking place here as these Pharisees call in the Sanhedrin. And the Pharisees present them with their dilemma. Very simply, they're asking, what are we to do with this Jesus? We've tried a lot of different things, they're clearly not working, for this man performs many signs. And here is their concern. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And if everyone starts believing in him, then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now, once again, the Pharisees see Jesus as a threat to their position of power and prestige. They're concerned that popular messianic expectations are being, are being stirred up by what Jesus is doing and saying. After all, anytime your star witness is a resurrected corpse, <laughs> you have a pretty good case. In this instance, for the validity of Jesus as the Christ, the long-awaited king of Israel. 
And if more and more people were to believe in Jesus in this way, then here's the fear, here's the concern, that the Roman Empire, which at that time ultimately ruled the Jewish nation, might come crashing down on the little bit of freedom and autonomy that Israel had, and that they might even possibly destroy the temple and the nation. That had happened in Israel's past history with Babylon. The Pharisees don't care to replicate history. So what's the way to stop this threat? Well, I think very simply their thought was stop Jesus. Don't let him go on like this any longer. So do you see the escalating tension in how they viewed Jesus and how they presented him to the Sanhedrin? See, Jesus was now not just a blasphemer who claimed God as his father, like they had told him that he was. He was not just a lawbreaker who healed people on the Sabbath, who the Pharisees thought needed to be stoned. Rather, he posed a strong risk to the very existence of the nation of Israel itself. At least that's how they saw it. But John wants us to see all of this tension very differently. He wants us to see that in the blind unbelief of the Pharisees, they want to stop the work of the very one who came to give life. The one who came to be the resurrection and the life is made out by them to be a divider and a destroyer. And so the Pharisees feel threatened by Jesus. And they just want him gone. But remember, keep all these truths that we're seeing that are building. Remember, no one takes Jesus' life from him. He lays it down of his own accord. God the Father and God the Son were in perfect unity as to why the Son came. He came to lay down his life for us so that we might have life and have it abundantly. So that his sheep that were in Israel and that are throughout all nations might be brought into his fold. So that there will be one flock and one shepherd. And the amazing and ironic thing that we see in verses 49 through 52 is that the plan of God for the salvation of all of his children is being worked out right in the midst of this meeting called in a high-level effort to stop Jesus, to put an end to his messianic work. There's a man here named Caiaphas who was the high priest who resided over the Sanhedrin. He was also a Sadducee, which meant he did not believe in resurrection under any circumstances. Also, as a Sadducee, he collaborated 
much more closely with the Romans than the Pharisees did. So all of this talk about Jesus and what he had done in raising Lazarus and how it could cause an upheaval against Rome was quite vexing to this Caiaphas. He did not want anyone rocking the boat, especially some man that he likely viewed as a peasant from Galilee. After all, Caiaphas had been high priest for 16 years. He was highly educated and intelligent, and he had no plans of messing up his career or making trouble for the Jews because of this Jesus. So to him, the solution was simple. Kill Jesus. I mean, he kind of asks it like this. Duh. (laughs) I mean, is there really even a question of what to do with him, guys? Better that one die so that the nation won't. So we killed Jesus so that the Romans won't kill us or take away our nation. Any other solution is foolish, Caiaphas said. Now, this really was a cold, calculated, and ruthless move on the part of this high priest. He had no care to find out more about Jesus, only to spare himself, and the nation. And so his plan is substitute Jesus for us. Let Jesus be the sacrificial lamb. And here is where John directs us back to a truth that he has repeatedly set before our hearts. Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus came to earth so that he might be lifted up to die, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life, that God did not send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And the way that the world would be saved was that Jesus would give his life so that we might have life. So when Caiaphas coldly stated that it would be better for Jesus to be executed as a scapegoat to spare the nation and its leaders... He, as Gary said, was made an unconscious vehicle of truth. He prophesied, John says, that Jesus would die for the nation. So when Caiaphas spoke, God was also speaking through him. So at one level, these are the high priest's words with his meaning, right? They had intent. And it wasn't nice. But at a much deeper level, these are God's words with his meaning. And they are full of grace 
and truth. Now understand, in a very real sense, these words are Jesus' death warrant. Okay, we don't want to undersell that. Caiaphas's position held that kind of power. He wanted Jesus dead in order to keep the Jews' relationship with Rome intact. And so he gave this death sentence. And as verse 53 states, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Plans that, as we will see in the upcoming Passover text, are going to come to fruition. But ultimately, ultimately, God is revealing to us that this was a plan that he had been putting in place long before that day. It was the plan of God and the purpose of the Son that Jesus came to this earth not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It was the plan of God and the purpose of the Son that Jesus laid down his life for the sheep so that the sheep might have abundant life. It was the plan of God and the purpose of the Son that Jesus would be lifted up so that all who look to him might not die the death that our rebellion deserves. This was the charge that Jesus received from the Father, the charge that he faithfully and lovingly obeyed. One author put it this way, the death of Jesus was not mainly a tragic set of events which God turned for our good. It was a loving set of events which God planned for our good. Not a tragic set of events that Caiaphas set in place that God just was able to flip flip on its head and turn for our good. No, this was a loving set of events that God put in place that he planned for our good. And so both Caiaphas and John understand Jesus' death to be sacrificial and substitutionary Jesus would die for the nation so that the nation might be spared. But oh, how different was the heart behind their intentions. Caiaphas is purely self-serving and political in his intention. Jesus is completely sacrificial and self-giving. His death was a death for others, not a death for himself. If Jesus dies, the nation lives. It is his life instead of theirs. And thus John calls our hearts to consider Jesus as that which John the Baptist proclaimed clear back in chapter 1. He is the Lamb of God, our sacrifice, sent to take away the sin of the world. 
Indeed, this was the end goal of Jesus' incarnation. This was why the Word became flesh. Understand, friends, He did not come just to keep us comfortable in our bondage. Right? That's what Caiaphas wanted for the people, didn't he? That they be able to live comfortably under the rule of Rome. Still in bondage, still under the oppression of Rome, but they could live comfortably. Just don't stir the waters. But like he did with Lazarus, Jesus came to set his people free from our captors. He came to redeem us from the tyranny of sin and death by giving his life as our ransom. And so it was the plan of God and it was the passion of the Son for the redemption of all God's people. Both the Jews who believe in Jesus Christ and the Gentiles that he is gathering from around the world. Jesus died to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. This is a parallel truth to what we saw a few weeks ago in the words of Jesus in chapter 10, 14 through 16, where he said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. And so there will be one flock, one shepherd. You see, sin scatters people. It divides people from people, and it divides people from God. But salvation in Christ brings them together. John writes of this in Revelation 5, 9, and 10 when he records the heavenly song of praise to the risen Lamb as the Sing, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on earth. These are the children of God ransomed by the blood of Jesus, gathered into one flock with one shepherd, our crucified and risen King. So this was the eternal purpose of God in the death and resurrection of his son, to defeat the enemies that separated us from our heavenly Father, to ransom his people, to gather his children. What men like Caiaphas meant for evil, God meant for good. 
for your good, Christian. Do you see that and understand that today? God loves you in that kind of intentional, detailed way that he planned for Caiaphas to sentence Jesus to death so that Jesus might die as your sacrifice, as my sacrifice, so that we might be saved. You see, God is always at work in Christ. I want you to hear this, okay? Be strengthened by this. God is always at work in Christ to deliver his children from evil, to keep us from stumbling, and to bring us with great joy into his glorious presence. And when you doubt that in the moments of your unbelief, look to the cross. Behold the man upon the cross, your sin upon his shoulders. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's what it means that Jesus is our substitute. He himself, Jesus, God become man, bore in his own body our sins as he hung on the tree. And he did this, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? So that he might bring us to What love the shepherd has for his sheep, that he would lay down his life to gather into one people, the family of God. What love the father has, that he would give his son so that we might not perish, but be given the eternal privilege of being called the children of God. This is the love that John beheld in his Savior so that he wrote, Behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God. You know yourself. You know you don't deserve that. You know you don't deserve such grace. You know you don't deserve to be adopted into the family of God. You weren't the first choice at recess. He saved you because he loves you. Because he wanted you to be part of the family of God. It's like Israel, right, in Deuteronomy? There was nothing about them that made God choose them. They were the least of all nations. 
So why has God given them the promised land? Why are they his chosen people? And Moses says, because of this, God set his love on them, period. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Now, this is the glorious revelation to us from God through the mouth of Caiaphas. It is revelation that was spoken with pride and hostility, but that was ultimately full of grace and truth. It is revelation that Jesus came to die so that all who believe on him might not face the condemnation of our sin, but instead become the children of God. So hear this as the gospel truth to nourish your soul with this day. That one man died, the God-man, Jesus Christ, so that all of his people might not perish. This revelation demands a response. You will either trust in Jesus as your faithful Savior who gave his life so that you might have life, or you will stand opposed to him and remain in your sins that only serve to condemn you. So I just want to ask you out of love this morning, do you belong to his people today? Are you a child of God? Remember John 1, 11 through 13. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. For anyone who says yes to Jesus, for anyone who believes what Jesus said, for anyone who will just reach out to take it, then God will give them this wonderful gift to be born into a whole new life, to be who they really are, who God always made them to be, their own true selves, God's dear child. Amen. Father, I pray that you would minister your word to our hearts today. that when we doubt your love, when we struggle to see you at work in our lives, that we would come back to such truth as this and to know that it was the eternal purpose of God before the foundation of the world that Jesus would come very Son of God, to give his life 
to die in our place, one person for all peoples that he is drawing to himself. One shepherd so that all of his sheep may come safely home. So Lord, I pray this morning that this would not be something that we just hear and see as elementary. We think, oh, I already knew that. I've got the gospel stuff down. But oh God, I pray that we would see our need daily for the truth of the gospel to pierce our hearts, to crush our pride, and to comfort us with your love. So Lord, those this morning that need to be convicted of pride, I pray, Lord, you would do that and bring a humility that comes when we see that there was nothing that we could have ever done to become the children of God except for you to mercifully and lovingly save us and make us your own. And for those who need to be comforted to know that as we sang earlier, you will hold us fast, help us to see the depths of grace that you went to to make us your children and to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you will never leave us or forsake us, that you will never abandon us, but that you will bring us safely home into your presence. And so, God, I pray that in whatever way your spirit needs to work in the hearts of the listener today, that their hearts will be open to receive it. We have prayed multiple times this morning, God, that people would not leave here unchanged, but that you would transform hearts. God, I pray that if there is one here today who does not know you as their Lord and Savior, who has never called upon you to be merciful to them, a sinner, that they would see your love and be compelled this morning to come to the cross and to receive life, abundant life, in your name. So, Father, I pray you would use the remainder of the service this morning through the table, through the words that we will sing, and all that we do, Father, to continue to confirm the hope of the gospel deep in our hearts so that it might continue to bear fruit for your kingdom and glory, we pray in Jesus' name.